okay, here we go. Let's jump in. We are, so we're in this series, Heaven and Hell, and we've, we just wrapped it up on Sundays. We did two, two weeks on heaven, and we did a first Wednesday on heaven. We've now done two Sundays on the doctrine of hell and what hell is like, or at least how it's described in Scripture. And, uh, and so tonight is kind of the final of really, really six talks on heaven and hell, three each. And, and this, one isn't, um, this one isn't so much um, uh, um, on um, what will it be like or how do we know. Uh, what we're going to look at are four different options that people believe about hell. Um, um, and we can really call them four theological positions. And they're all very different and they can't all be true. So one of these, well, I, I would say this, uh, they can't all be right. They can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. So I, I'm, I mean, I'm convinced one of them, one of them has to be the, the, a more, um, a more uh, biblical argument. I will let you decide. We'll have discussions, we'll have questions and you'll be able to kind of work through like, oh yeah, that seems to be true. Let me encourage you or just challenge you. The, this, this, studying the doctrine of hell is, no, is not an easy task. It's not, something, it's not something you do like casually on a Saturday afternoon. You're like, I'm gonna go to the park and I'm just gonna read a book all about hell. I mean, you're like, it's gonna be a wonderful time. That's not what you do. Now, this room is full. This might be the most we've ever had, which means you guys are freaks. Like, you're crazy. <laughs> you're like, we want to learn. Let's do, all right, let's get into it. Okay, and we're going to get into it. But this is not something that you, like, it's also not something you should take lightly or casually. But let me say this. It's also, and this is true of, like, anytime I speak, this is my position. It's also not something in which you choose your personal preference, who cares? Whatever you like, but I want it to be like this. That's wonderful. It doesn't mean you're right. Because you really truly believe in my heart of hearts, I believe this, that, or the other. I get it. I get it. And you should have deep convictions. But having a deep conviction doesn't mean it's accurate or right or true or, or a, a, an accurate description of the reality or at least how the Bible describes it. So what I want to know is not what you believe. I say this and I, I mean it with all sincerity, but also genuinely and not to offend. I don't care what you believe. What you believe has no impact over my life, nor should what other people believe have impact over your life. What I want to know is what the Bible says and, and, and am I gonna take Jesus at his word, right? What Jesus says is infinitely more authoritative than what you say about a topic. So when we talk about hell, people have like, well, I think it'll be like this, or I don't, I don't want it to be like that, or I don't want to think of it in this terms, so therefore I prefer to think of hell like this. That's great and probably wrong. Just because I prefer it one way doesn't mean it is that way. So we're going to look at throughout, throughout the history of the church for 2,000 years, people have been discussing and debating the topic of hell, what it's like. And, and, and I, I, I hesitate as well too, because um, it's, it's often, it's throughout the centuries, it has certainly been used as a weapon. Um, it has been used as a tool of manipulation to say, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're in danger of hell. And, and, not, and not just like back in the day, 
you know, like the Crusades or, or medieval times, not where it was certainly used as a weapon. Today, people will use hell as, um, as a means by which to control someone. Not to say like, hey, we need to take seriously the, this doctrine and what Jesus says about this as a, real, as a real place. Instead, it's used as a, well, if you don't do this, if you, don't, if you, if you leave this church, you're going to hell. If you switch religions, you're going to hell. If you X, Y, Z, if you, and, and we don't, I mean, I would never say that here, uh, but I, I know many of you who have left a church, a different church, not, you didn't leave this church and come back, and I'm like, sorry, you left. I'm, the doors are locked. But people who have, you have left other churches and been told if you leave, you're leaving the one true church, and you're gonna lose your salvation, and you will go to hell. You left another faith. You left uh, 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 Jehovah's Witness or, um, for some, even Mormonism. And it's like, that's the worst sin you can commit is to leave the faith. And, and here you are, little old New Hope, and you've been told you're going to hell. And it's been, and it's been used against you. So um, I, I, we're not doing any of that this, this evening. What we're doing is saying, all right, of the theological positions that have been held throughout the centuries, let's just talk about them and present them and see which one seems to be most biblical, not necessarily which one you prefer or want to be true. I have, so I have, a, I have this inner conflict in me. I have one that I'm convinced is true and I have one that I hope is true. I wished was true. I really, really want it to be like this, but who am I to just, I have zero, I have zero authority or control over what uh, what hell is like or the reality of hell. All I can do is say, this is what Jesus says. This is what Paul writes. This is what John writes in his vision of like all of this. And so either we believe them or we don't. So let's talk about this. What is God's judgment like? We've spent two Sundays going over this and it's been, uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was so glad many of you came back the second week. <laughs> Because, you know, you're preaching on hell and it's like, all right, guys, here we go. And, you know, it's a heavy topic. You leave Sunday and I'm, I went home going, man, I'm just like, I just need to lay down for a minute here. And, and I don't know if you guys felt that way or, you know, and then, you know, the next Sunday it was going, I hope people come back. We had, we had people come for the first time ever <laughs> on week one of hell. And I'm just going, I hope you make it back. Like, I just, like, I could not imagine, like, I, so here's the thing. So I didn't grow up in church, so, so I remember my first day in church. I remember my, distinctly my first day in church and what it was like and what we did and where I sat. And if I showed up to a talk on hell, it would have been, I would have been scared, but also, this is what you guys talk about? <laughs> like, this is, every week, this is what you do, huh? And, and it would have been so kind of like, oh, man, this is like a downer. Like, everyone left with sad faces and... Um, so I, I'm so glad you came back and many came back. Um, I even met some that were new that first week and they came back and brought people with them, which, which, which is awesome. Or it means like, hey, you guys need to hear this. Like, <laughs> you need to hear about hell because you are living. Okay. So here we are talking about hell yet again and, um, and the, the theological um, uh, perspectives of hell. So what is God's judgment like? Some of this will be a little bit of kind of review, at least get us back into the, 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 the biblical thinking about hell. God's judgments are absolutely righteous, perfectly just, and based in truth. When we talk about God's 
judging and his judgment and his judging of people. Um, it, you always have to partner it with, but he does it righteously and in truth. He's a judge who, who never gets the verdict wrong. He never messes up. So when we think about this, it's not, it's, it, like, don't think of God as just like, well, do what I say or else and, and punishing people who don't deserve it. Um, the idea of this is that all of, like everyone who deserves judgment gets judgment and they're judged by a perfect judge who gets it right every time and is righteous and is just. Romans chapter two, verse two says this. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. A few verses later, verse five. But because of your stubbornness, your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. This is, uh, we read through this really quick, but if, if, if you take this seriously, here's what this means. You can actually store up more wrath for yourself. You can have more wrath than less wrath based on your decisions, how you live. And, and we could also then, and we'll talk about this maybe in the Q&A, um, it, this seems to mean that some people will have more wrath than others against them. Some will have stored up more wrath than others, which maybe we don't want to hear, but, but again, it makes sense when we're talking about justice, that the greater the crime, the greater the punishment, and the lesser the crime, the lesser the punishment. All right? Hmm. Okay. Um, so God's judgments are based on are righteous and based in truth. God's judgments will be intensely personal and individual. He's not judging a group or a nation as a whole, but each person will be judged according to what they've done. So it says this, Romans chapter two, so same passage right after this, verse six, God will give to each person according to, to what he has done. By the way, the he also includes she. <laughs> Ladies, so you're not off the hook. I've had people, I'm reading this, and they'll be like, says nothing about women, see? We, we do nothing wrong. <laughs> like, women are perfect, every single one of them. <laughs> to those who persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Each person judged according to what they have done. And the third one, God's judgment leaves men and women without excuse, without uh, I didn't know or you can't hold that against me. Here's what we're told in Romans chapter one. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. You, without the option of saying, well, I didn't know. I, I was ignorant of it. Now, now, you may not know the details and certainly have a, a perfect theology, but you knew enough. You knew enough. You were, there was enough evidence of God that that would cause you to at least, at least think about or pursue him, but instead, you didn't. So God's judgment leaves men and women without excuse. Okay, here are the four views, and we'll go through them, um, uh, not really in, in any particular order, but um, we'll just walk through each one. 
So the first view is the literal view. This is the view that takes, uh, that takes the words of, of Jesus and his followers at face value and say what they say is what they meant, that there is a literal hell. The second view is the annihilationist view. We'll look at what that means. The third view is the purgatory view. And then the fourth view, the universalist view. Every one of these views is and can be held by a follower of Jesus, by a Christian. So before we say like, oh, well, the, the top one is the Christian view, and then the other three are the non-Christian views, there are, there are plenty of believers who would fit in each category. Um, which also, by the way, uh, is acceptable. Meaning, you don't have to have the correct view of hell to be a Christian. You can be a Christian and be wrong about this. This is not one of those make or break theology. Like for me, the doctrine of hell, there's a lot of doctrines where you say like, all right, this is closed fist. I'm, you can't get me to change my mind. The faith in Jesus, the salvation by Jesus, by Jesus alone is death on the cross. Like there's no way that you can convince me of anything else. My understanding of hell, I hold that with an open hand to say, all right, if I'm wrong, so, oh, so be it. I don't lose my faith over this. That, that there are plenty of people in different views that we will still be able to, to experience the faith with, that love the Lord, and that we will, that I genuinely, I genuinely hold that we will see them in heaven. That having, having an incorrect view of hell does not somehow disqualify you from being a follower of Jesus. So it is okay if you are in a different view than, than someone else. It's okay if you have a different view than, than even myself. It is okay for you to be wrong. You already said it. You already know. You already know. All right, here we go. We'll start, we'll go in order here. The literal view. The literal view says hell is everlasting conscious torment, both physical and mental. Probably even we we could say spiritual. That it is conscious punishment. Eternal conscious punishment. The literal view describes hell, the hell fire as literal fire. That this is not a metaphor for something else. That this hell fire is act like when you, what you know, the word fire, what you know it represents as flames that will burn you. That's what it's talking about as actual Fire. Uh, fire is mentioned frequently in Scripture, and there's a, again, the, your homework is to, is you have all of these, you can look them up. Um, the parable of Lazarus, this is a, one of the main ones that Jesus talks about. This, um, we looked at this two weeks ago at our first, um, the first uh, Sunday on hell, and we looked at this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And the, one of the things the rich man says is, I am in agony in this fire, in these flames. I am in agony in this fire. Now, the literal view says he's probably saying he's in agony in this fire because he's in agony in the fire. That seems to be a fair statement. And, and so this view says that hellfire is literal fire. Infinite sin against an infinite God deserves infinite punishment of infinite intensity. You can even add one if you wanted for an infinite duration. The idea behind this 
is that uh, to sin against a, 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 an infinite God requires some kind of, of likewise punishment, which can only result in infinite separation. Not temporary, but everlasting. Utter horror, this is the next one, utter horror of hell acts as, should act as motivation to preaching the gospel, praying for the lost, and sharing about Jesus with others. Again, if there is a literal hell with literal fire and literal torment and agony, then we should, we should do everything we can to prevent as many people from going there as possible, whatever that looks like, whatever that is. For however long you have on earth, however many years you have, this should act, the, the literal view says, this should act as motivation to say, I want to, as, for as many people as I can. Like Paul says, I, would, I became all things to all men in hopes that I might save some. I can't save all of them, but maybe some, maybe just a few. We see this, that objections against the literal fire are derived this is what a literal, uh, literal view of, uh, literalist of view of hell would say, that they're derived from humanist sentiment and based more on philosophy and theology instead of scripture. That what, what a literal view of hell will say is that, that the, the arguments against it aren't like quoting the Bible to say, well, the Bible says this, but rather philosophical in nature or theological for however that looks. We'll look at, again, some both of those. We'll look at philosophical and theological perspectives here in just a second. All right, now there's some problems with this view. Key problems, we'll look at the, for each one of these views, we'll look at what it says and then some key problems, what people have against it. It doesn't adequately, and this is true, it doesn't adequately address the symbolic nature of many verses. It doesn't adequately address verses suggesting total destruction, as with the annihilationist view we'll look at here in a second. There are a number of verses in which it seems to be saying that the, the destruction will be total and that it will, it will be the end of whatever, like whoever is being destroyed will end. They will cease to, to, it will, they will cease to continue to exist. It doesn't adequately address those verses. Um, and the second, and this is what people have again, this is why people will, uh, uh, will, um, will reject this view or at least push back. Everlasting vindictive punishment of, of horrendous intensity seems inconsistent with notions of love and justice and raises serious questions about God's character. This is what they'll say. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. All right. Now, part of that is personal preference. I don't want to. And I, that, I totally get that. And, and it, but a, a, on a more theological level, um, pro, opponents of this will say this doesn't seem to be consistent with the character of a loving, gracious father who would punish his children forever. Okay? That's fair, actually. That's a, that's a, that's a valid concern. Theologically. All right. Okay. That's a literal view. The annihilationist view is this. Unrepentant souls are destroyed by God and cease to exist, i.e. they are annihilated. This too has, uh, has, um, has uh, uh, long been held by many theologians, many Christians, many followers of Jesus who will hold to this. 
Um, and we'll say that the, the nature of hell is terrible, but it's temporary. And that they'll say this, that there are verses that suggest utter destruction as opposed to everlasting suffering. So let's look at some of these. Obadiah says this, they shall drink and drink and then be as if they had never been. Nahum says this, they will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. All right? This is one of the analogies that annihilationists will use, this idea of either stubble or, or, uh, or chaff. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Psalm 37 says this, a little while and the wicked will be no more. That's it, they'll be done. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies will be like the, the beauty of the fields. They will vanish, vanish like smoke. I have, seen a, I have seen a wicked and ruthless man, but he soon passed away and was no more. Jesus says this, they'll quote Jesus and say, he taught this as well. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The argument uh, for the annihilationist view um, is uh, when, it, when it speaks of eternal fire or everlasting fire or eternal punishment or everlasting punishment, it's not referring to the duration of time of the punishment, but that it, it, the punishment will not will not go away. Not that people being punished will be punished forever, but that this fire is eternal. It can't be put out. That that God's judgment can't be overridden. Does that make sense? It's describing the flame as eternal, not the punishment in the flame as eternal. That's how they'll describe it. All right, hey. Okay, I understand. You'll read the same verse and see everlasting destruction or everlasting fire, and they'll say, well, it's not ongoing everlasting destruction, but rather this destruction is permanent and they will forever be destroyed. They will forever be no more. It will be everlasting in the result. Okay, all right, that seems fair. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, only a fearful expectation, so of those who are not followers of, of Jesus, only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. What they'll say is that there seems to be, uh, there seems to be language that suggests that this punishment is all-consuming and ending, like chaff, like burning chaff. It burns and then it's gone. That's it. Not everlasting, not forever. That this punishment does have an end. That that God will consume His enemies. That He will make them no more. That they will be destroyed. And and you go to look for them and they don't exist. They are no more. You cannot find them. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, this view um, looks at this verse as well, Philippians. There, the enemies of Christ, destiny is destruction. Chapter one, Paul writes, they will be destroyed. Again, this, this view looks at these, vor- these verses and says, uh, takes them literally, like the literal view, and says this destruction then, this, this, this whatever hell is, seems to be an utter destroying of the, the, the person or the soul, the sinner, that they will be no more. They will be annihilated. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, if anyone destroys God's temple, he will destroy them. Not that they're going to be punished, but that they will be destroyed. Okay. Again, this language seems, um, uh, seems to have a finality to it. Immortality and incorruption, uh, incorruption uh, are promised only to the righteous. And this is true in this passage. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about, um, for now we see uh, 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 what was born perishable, we raised imperishable. And that this, and he talks about how uh, how those who are redeemed will will be will have bodies like him, like Jesus, who we we started in a physical body, but we will be raised a spiritual body. And and he talks about all of this language and that they will live forever. And it's all in this passage, it's only promised to the righteous. That this idea of the eternal soul, or at least living eternally, living forever, is only promised to the righteous, not to uh, the unrighteous. Immortality thus may be refused to the unrepentant, reflecting God's judgment on them. They'll say that God's judgment is that they don't get to live forever. They cease to exist. And that, that decision, that punishment that they receive is everlasting. They, they forever cease to exist. There's never a moment then where they, where they, where they reemerge back into existence, but that their, their, their non-existence is eternal i.e. their punishment is eternal, okay? Victory of God is truly final and ultimate. Heaven and hell don't have to eternally coexist in eternity as in the traditional or literalist view. They'll say that, that heaven and hell, though they, are, they certainly do represent a destination of, of people, they don't have to coexist forever in an ongoing manner. Key problems. This too has some issues with it. Key problems with the annihilationist view. It doesn't adequately address passages suggesting conscious punishment in hell and what seems to be eternal conscious punishment. And it's difficult to prove that ancient Jews during Paul's time that they held to this view. It's difficult to say to, the, to those, especially in Paul's time and even Paul himself, that they held to an annihilationist view, especially given their view of the immortality of the soul. So their understanding, their theology was that souls are eternal. So it would be hard to say, well, this then is the dominant understanding of, uh, of Paul and, and John and Peter, given that they didn't, didn't hold to the mortality of a soul, that the soul would, would go on forever, thus the final destination would last forever. All right, next view. Okay, so far so good? Okay, all right, you have your favorite so far? Yeah, so far you're like, none, I don't want, <laughs> nine of, neither are my, what I want. Uh, the purgatorial view, or purgatory, and uh, again, this is uh, a, a view held by many, many Christians, i.e. Catholics. Um, purgatory is a kind of outer court of heaven in which people are placed until they are more fully prepared for entrance into God's presence. Uh, just by show of hands, and you can, you know, this is totally, I'm not, I guess I am putting you on the spot, but I'm not forcing you to raise your hand. How many of you came from a Catholic background or a Catholic church or Catholic experience? Okay, quite a bit of us. Okay. Um, was this, um, uh, was this, was this your view or at least the view you were taught? 
Purgatory? Yeah. All right. Are you, you still in this camp? Nope. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Um, was it prevalent in the teaching of the Catholic Church? Or was it, you know, you go through confirmation. Was it like, hey, this is the deal? It was, it was highlighted, right? Yeah. Uh, were these Bible-believing followers of Jesus? Okay. 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 Mixed. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably going like, not the ones I was by. <laughs> like, uh, let me say this about, about the Catholic Church. You certainly can be a Christian in the Catholic Church, though Catholic theology doesn't always line up with Christian theology. You can be a Catholic and also say, yeah, but I don't hold to the official church Catholic theology. I love Jesus. I just prefer high church. I love going to mass. And I worship the Lord and he's my savior. And you're going, man, you might be more Christian than I am, right? But you just go to a different church. I, had a, uh, I have a buddy who, um, <clears throat> who married, he grew up in an evangelical Protestant church. And I married a Catholic girl. And, uh, and one of the deals was, and this was, I, probably, I think, her family, said, you can marry her, but you're coming to our church. You have to not, they didn't say convert, but you have to, essentially, you have to, uh, <clears throat> you have to become Catholic, or at least you have to go to Catholic church. And he is very much a uh, follower of Jesus, and uh, when could consider himself an evangelical who goes to Catholic church and, and now prefers it and loves it. And, and maybe um, has his theology is, I wouldn't say, it's not, it's not bad um, per se, but it has shifted a little bit. And, uh, and some things we disagree on, so therefore he's wrong. And, <laughs> but we have great spirited discussions and debates about some of this. And, and you know, he'll hold the Catholic view on something and I'll be like, all right, well, what about this? And, and, and it's, it's great. And I would never say, well, because you go to a Catholic church, and even hold to some of the Catholic teaching that disqualifies you from the faith. Now, that being said, I've had many Catholic friends who were worse than sinners I knew. <laughs> and that simply going to Catholic church didn't make you a follower of Jesus. And, and, and so whatever our view of the Catholic church, there's good, and there's certainly bad, and there's good people in it. And do and you know what we could say about the Protestant church? There are good and there are bad in it. It turns out, it turns out we're all sinners. <laughs> it, I did, I, we didn't know that. We didn't know. We didn't know that every church is full of sinners. But it turns out, this church too, there's a few of them here. There's a few, but we, have, we're, we are going to find you, by the way. So, so this view, this view is, is very Catholic and, and, and can be held by people who love Jesus and are followers of Jesus. And I would say, not that I'm, I get to decide who goes where, but it seems to be, you're, you seem to be describing a faith much like mine. You seem to be a Christian and you hold to a view of purgatory and I don't hold to a view of purgatory, but who am I to say that you're not a Christian? So as a Christian, you can certainly hold to a view of purgatory. Um, and, and it doesn't disqualify you, even though I would say biblically, that it is certainly not the more accurate understanding of what hell is like. But this is the view. Okay, most people die as flawed people, still incapable of unconditional heavenly love, not as giants of faith, and thus it seems unlikely that they will immediately share in the destiny of heroic martyrs. What this view will say is that, that, um, that most people die not having perfected life or, or still having sin and in, sin in them. 
that needs to be dealt with before they can enter into heaven and, and live with the kind of the, the holiest of people who, who, um, who've ever lived and, and now are experiencing a wonderful experience in heaven, that there's still some work that has to be done in and for them. It is the intermediate purification state necessary to bring about complete oneness to the love of God, i.e. spiritual growth involving cooperation of human freedom and responsibility that, accru- that continues after death. The idea of purgatory is that, is that um, there are things in you that are still imperfect and you have to be purified. And so you go to purgatory to be purified so that you can then be completely and fully open to who God is. And this is the, this is the process by which God perfects you is through purgatory. How, how long do you, for the, my, the, my Catholic friends, how, how long do you go to purgatory? It depends on how good you did and how many prayers you gave. How many Hail Marys? How many people are praying for you? Yeah, after you die, right? But also how many sins you accumulate, right? That you have to burn off? Yeah. How, how many times you've gone to a priest? Yeah. Uh, when we talk about hell as, I want to be careful here. I don't want to offend. I truly don't want to offend anyone. So I, I'm not trying to offend. But, but you could see how this could be used to manipulate. That purg- the doctrine of purgatory could be used to get you to do, hey, listen, if you don't do this, you're going to spend probably another 100 years in purgatory. What? 100 years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, indul- yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you, there was a time when you can buy your way out with indulgences. No? Okay. Um, purgatory is this intermediate state of, of uh, purification. Purgatory bridges the gap between the imperfect sanctification at death and perfect life in heaven. That you and I die as imperfect sinners and to get to uh, the perfect life that's required to enter into heaven, you gotta go through this purification state. And it could last for years, for decades, potentially centuries, right? Depending on the kind of life you lived and, and, and maybe how long you were a, a Christian or a Catholic, um, and how, much, how much wrath you accumulated for yourself that needs to be purified. Our good works on earth and our prayers for the departed can help in the healing of the dead. All right, so we talked about this, praying for those who have passed away, or, or if you die, that you get people who pray for you as well. And, uh, and that, will all, that will all help in your... Uh, uh, in, in the, uh, it will help lessen the amount of time you spend in purgatory. Ancient Christians, this is, again, more evidence that they would say, ancient Christians prayed for the dead. And that's true, actually. This is true. Um, human solidarity transcends death, and praying for the dead is a reflection of, hum, of, of human re- relationality beyond the grave. Now, before we say, like, hold on, this is kind of weird, uh, this is... On this particular point, I think most people, um, most people fall into this category and will do this. And when we say pray, substitute pray with talk, and plenty of people talk to their spouse or loved one that has passed away. In fact, every time you go to their gravesite, if they if they have a grave or tombstone or they're at, at a funeral, you probably talk to them, right? And as much as we're saying, you're not praying, but in some way you're, you're trying to at least continue the relationship 
by having a conversation. I, I know people who, um, it's the saddest thing, it's the hardest thing, but it's also like, wow, okay, they truly love. Where a family member, I, I know a, a family that the father um, was killed tragically and the kids were in high school, and so they're high school and junior high, they're still younger, um, and they would have, uh, he was, of course, we did the funeral and did the, I mean, it was terrible. And, um, and they would have times where they would do a picnic with dad, right? And just go, so we're going to spend time with dad. And remember him on a birthday or a celebration, and you're like, oh man, that's touching, right? And you go, you know, if I, I, all right, here we go. Uh, if, it, uh, if, if, if I lost a family member, I could see myself doing this. And being like, all right, we're going to spend time with, woo, let's move on. Uh, this idea of praying for the dead is, um, is something that, not that we do or are called to do, but you could see how it wouldn't take much for someone to get to that point to say, we're going to continue to talk and think about them. And, 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 and if praying for them helps, helps get them out of purgatory, we're going to do it. Right? If that's the theology we've been taught and we've been told, you could see how this would be something you would, you would absolutely want to do. All right, some scriptural support. All right, again, my, kind of my standard line is, all right, I don't care what you think. I want to know what the Bible says. All right, so what does the Bible say specifically about this? Matthew uh, chapter 12 speaks to this somewhat, kind of in the negative um, here it is. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then, and then Jesus says this, either in this age or in the age to come. The purgatory view will say, well, it seems to be then indicating that sins can be forgiven in the age to come. But that this sin won't. That maybe, maybe there are sins that will be forgiven in the next world or the afterlife or the next age, but this sin of the of blasphemy against who speaks against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, won't be forgiven in this age or the next. But other sins might be forgiven both in this age and possibly maybe you can be forgiven in the next. They'll look at the words of Jesus and say, he seems to be leaving the door open to the possibility of, of being forgiven even after death. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, fire, it's talking about fire, will test the quality of each man or woman's work. Fire here, spoken here, is what they would say, the purgatorial fire before the final judgment. Now, uh, this is something that, that, uh, that Paul is writing about, that fire will test the quality. And so they'll say, oh, this fire, Paul is referencing to, is this temporary purgatorial fire where there's a, a purification happening. A burning of, uh, of, uh, of a person's life and the, the sin and the negative and the evil will be burned off and what's left is a pure, perfect person. Hmm, all right? Um, some apocryphal support. Now, again, you and I, now we're looking at what are called extra-biblical or at least um, the apocryphal writings. And so these aren't, if you grew up in, in Catholic church, uh, you had these. Did you read these? Nope. Okay. We got, a, we got some nopes. Any yups? Any, I see a yup. What was that? Not encouraged to read the Bible. Not even the Maccabees. Huh. 
Did you have one, though, with like the extra books? There's uh, 73. Is that right? There's five extra books. You don't? We have the catechism. Uh, you, yeah, but you, 73 books of the Bible? Not 60. We have 66. Well, there's five All right. Let's. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, <clears throat> do you guys know how many books are in the Bible? Yeah, you do now. Yeah. <laughs> Cheaters. Cheaters. So the, the Catholic Bible has extra books. And it's called the Apocrypha. And so there are extra books. Um, and these, do you know what these books are? Do you guys know? Maybe we'll do a first Wednesday on the Apocrypha. Maybe we won't. It's, it's fine. So the Apocrypha is, um, is uh, supposedly, or it is, but it's not necessarily biblical, but it's the extra biblical part of, um, of, uh, of books that were written between the Old and New Testament. So the Old Testament and New Testament has what's called the Age of Silence. There's 400 years of silence, which means there's no prophets or books written. So the end of the Old Testament ends 400 years before the New Testament begins. So there's 400 years, during which there's still people who believe in, in Yahweh and God. There's still Jews, good, faithful Jews, and they're still writing things down, having experiences. And those that are written down, those books that are written, are the Apocrypha. And that's where this is. So it's the intertestament, intertestament period where they're written down. These extra stories and narratives and teachings. And, and Does that make sense? Right? So they're not in our Bible. We would say these aren't biblical. But a, a Catholic would. They would see this and say this, is, this is, has just as much authority as the rest of Scripture. In 2 Maccabees, um, Judas made atonement for the dead that they might be freed from sin. Here it is in verse 46. It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sins. Good. Again, a good Catholic will read this and say, this is scripture. Telling us to pray for the dead that they will be like loosed or that the, the, the hold that sin has on them will be let go. That they will be freed from sin if we pray for them. All right. Again, if you know, we hold to the Maccabees, we would say the Bible says it. But you and I would say, well, well that's not a, a, a biblical book. It's an extra biblical book or at least an apocryphal book. The Roman Catholic theology analogously compares doctrines and scripture to a plant and its seed. This is a, um, it's, it's really brilliant, actually. Um, inter- intrinsic relation exists, but the oak tree will still look different from an acorn. Here's the analogy. That, you know, you take any tree, any oak tree, and say it was once just an acorn. Everything that need is necessary for this oak tree existed in an acorn. All of the information, all of it was needed. It need, obviously needed additional, uh, like, input. It needed sunlight and soil and water, of course. But all of its DNA, all of the components were there. It existed as a seed, but it is in full blossom now. It doesn't look anything like a seed. It doesn't look anything like an acorn. Even though we would say, well, yeah, I mean, the acorn led to the oak tree, of course. What they will say is that Scripture is the acorn. And doctrine that comes out of Scripture doesn't always look like what's in Scripture. That as this doctrine grows and develops, it has its roots in Scripture, but it can develop and and grow beyond that and still have the same essence. It It still has the same origin, certainly, but it doesn't have to look like Scripture. You hear that and you go, that is a good illustration that is wrong. But it is a good picture to at least in your mind say like, see how that could relate? So, because that even though this doctrine doesn't look like what's in Scripture, it has its roots in Scripture and it can be different. Now, this too has some problems. 
and there is really one. The questionable exegesis of supporting verses plus the just simply the overall lack of biblical support. Here's the response. Well, it's not in the Bible. Okay, but what else? No, no, no. You would think Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, someone would have written extensively about purgatory if they knew it to be true. If that was a doctrine that the Lord had revealed to them. But it doesn't seem to be the case. That this doctrine seems to be one that came from church tradition or the teachings of various leaders or popes you know, within the Catholic tradition, but not from Scripture itself. So we would look at this and say, well, I get that you know, Pope XYZ uh, affirmed, stated, and affirmed the doctrine of purgatory, but it doesn't seem to be in Scripture. In fact, the doctrine of purgatory um, is one of the, the least developed in the Catholic Church, and it's only uh, almost referred to and hinted at uh, as a, as a almost, um, almost as a byproduct, but there's no, there's no authoritative teaching that says, thus, this is the doctrine of purgatory. It's almost up for interpretation as to what it even looks like and is. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll say the word purgatory, but you'll, you could say, all right, but in the Catholic Church, who has the definitive work on purgatory? Like, well, this guy mentioned it. This one talks about it a little bit. We hear about it here. There's no, it certainly isn't developed like, like many of the other uh, doctrines within the Roman Catholic Church, but it is certainly there. Uh, okay, the last view, the universalist view. Now, this one has some, um, we're going to break it up into different categories, and, and not uh, not every category, um, oof. No, that might be, I was going to say, not every category we could say Christians hold to, but I bet you there are Christians who would be, who, are, who will be with us and G- with Jesus, who who probably do land in each one of these. Though, again, though maybe wrong, but they would hold to these. All right, so here they are. There are multiple views within the universalist view. The universalist view is this. Everyone's going to get in. Universally. Everyone's going to be fine, right, in one way or another. But, but the, the way that breaks down are, isn't always the same. So the first is the secular universalism. The second is the pluralist universalism. And then the third uh, is uh, certainly the most Christian of the three, the post-mortem universalism. Post-mortem meaning post-death. Okay, so here we go. We'll go through these fairly quickly, then we'll do some, uh, some fun discussion. Okay, the universalist view, uh, uh, the, particularly the secular universalist view, contends that the destination everyone will share after they died, uh, have died is not conceived in any way from the biblical descriptions about the afterlife. Now, whatever's next, the Bible got wrong. It corresponds with the popular notion of a happy future for all who have died. They will say things like this, and this is, you, you'll hear this a lot. In fact, this is, probably, this is probably the predominant view of most people, certainly the most people in America, is this view. They'll say things like this. View often claims they're in a better place. They're at peace now. How many times have you heard this at a funeral or someone's passing or on Facebook, someone passes away and it's, you know, RIP, rest in peace. They're in peace now. They're in a better place. They're looking down on us. This kind of language where it doesn't matter. Any, there's no theology behind it. There's no verse you're quoting. It's just a, a nice sentiment of things are better for them now. And, and no real evidence, just simply 
personal preference, maybe wishful thinking. But this is, this is easily the largest view of people who, who talk about death or people who have died, that they're in a better place. They'll even use this language, whether they know it to be true or not. Oh, well, at least they're in a better place now, as though it's a means of comfort for someone. Um, okay, the, the pluralist universalism, all right? This is, goes a little bit more than that. So the, at least they're in a, well, they're in a better place now is, is, is quite vague and nondescriptive. This one gets a little bit more, a little bit more intellectual thought that goes into this. A range of thoughts, beliefs, ideas, and points of view on a subject is good and all have validity. Here's what they're saying. Ready? Hey, whatever you believe is true for you. Who are we to say you're wrong? As long as you're faithful, as long as you believe what you believe, you're fine. Just be true to you and what you believe. All, all viewpoints, belief systems are equally good. And the best course of action is to blend them together as fully as one can. So whatever your religious background or your personal views or your, your philosophy or theology or your understanding of life, whatever it is, it's good. And it's best if we learn to, to understand everyone's perspective and, and, um, and, um, and somehow, as best we can, allow for all of them, blend them all together. The premise that God has revealed himself in any unique or definitive sense in Jesus Christ is rejected. Now, not by everyone, but for the most part, they'll say, well, just because Jesus said it doesn't make it true. Now, when I say there's a Christians in every one of these, I know, I know Christians who, um, who will hold to their truth in Jesus that he is their salvation, and I'm like, okay, great, wonderful. And then they'll say, but who am I to say anyone else is wrong? And I'll say, well, you don't have to land in that position. That's not, I don't think that's your role to go around pointing fingers at everyone and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But there are some things that, that do seem to be true. Uh, I, I have some, some friends that I, that I think are universalist, even though, and I would say, I, like I would, I would wholeheartedly say this person loves Jesus, but I think they're wrong on this. But the, again, this doesn't disqualify. You, I, I really, I really want to stress this, that if you know someone or you have a friend or maybe someone at your table and they have a different view of, the, of hell than you, they can be wrong and still love Jesus. And, it, and listen, ready? I, I, don't, I might get flack for this, and that's fine. I'm turning off my email tonight, so good luck. <laughs> it might not be your job to convince them that your perspective is the right one. In fact, and it may be, it may be lovingly, gently, but I would hate, I would hate for you to jeopardize a relationship over a theological disagreement about a topic that isn't of, of first priority, where it isn't the, like, um, no, if you're telling me Jesus is not the way to heaven, to Jesus is, then you and I are going to disagree. If you're telling me you have a different view about the nature of hell, hey, I'd, great, let's talk about Jesus together. Let's, let's talk about what we're going to experience, not what we're going to miss out on. It's okay to allow people to be wrong. And, and, and I say this, I say this as a guy who loves being right. (laughs) 
And I have, I, I, maybe it's maturity, maybe it's just understanding that, that relationship to me is, is now more important than trying to correct someone when they're wrong about issues that don't seem to be salvific issues, meaning they don't seem to be the things that, that either decide if you're saved or not. Those issues are of utmost importance to me. And when I meet with people, we're talking about, hey, what afterlife and Jesus and, and all of the other stuff. It might be good for like theological, intellectual debate, but man, I, don't want, I certainly don't want to end relationships over, over a disagreement or debate or fight over this. So does that make sense? Good, because it's correct. Okay. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Jesus is simply one of many great religious leaders who have been used by God to provide guidance to mankind. This, again, is a... Uh, by the way, when someone says this, when someone says this, awesome. You, like, the, the, one of the best things you can do is get someone to either say this themselves or agree with this. Not like, do you agree? Yes or no, right now. Right? Sign this paper saying you agree. But rather, if they say, I think Jesus was a great moral teacher, I think he has a lot to teach us. Awesome. Awesome. You have, you have common ground now. And now, here's what that means. This is great. This is one of the, when we did our evangelism class on tactics, this is one of the tactics. Um, the tactic is called, what a friend we have in Jesus. Once someone says that they hold Jesus in high esteem, you now get to use the words of Jesus in the conversation. You now get Jesus on your side. They say, hey, Jesus is a great teacher. And you say, hey, I think he was too. What's some of, the, what's some of your favorite stuff that he said? Oh, man, he talked about loving your, loving, uh, loving your enemy. Uh, he talked about not judging people. I'm like, man, yeah, he had a lot of great stuff to say. Yeah, I think, I think, I think Jesus is the greatest teacher we could, we could learn from. Yeah, okay. In fact, some other things he said. You know he said this? He said this. This sounds crazy. I'm curious what you think. He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And then he said this, no one gets to the Father except through me. Hmm, that's pretty bold, right? From this great moral teacher. You just use Jesus, not me. It's not Brandon saying you have to be, you have to be a follower of Jesus or else. I get to use Jesus now because they hold him in high esteem. All right, great. If they hold him in high esteem, wonderful. wonderful. You've, you've, you've crossed a very big hurdle in, the, in the, the discussion, the relationship, that's wonderful. Simply, Jesus is simply one of great, uh, many great religious leaders who have used, been used by God. You don't have to agree with that to say, hey, I think you're right that Jesus is a great religious leader. Not one of many. He's the greatest. He's the, he, like, he is the, okay, but we're going to use this to help, uh, to help hopefully, hopefully, um, see, help you see the light of the gospel. Okay, this view often claims as all rivers lead to the ocean, so all religions lead to God. Another one that I love. I'm like, oh man, that's great. And then I, I, remember, um, I remember having this discussion once with, um, with a leader of mine who didn't hold to this, but he's like, all right, what do you say to this? And he said, There's all, all religions, all, all rivers lead to the, uh, to the ocean. So just all religions lead to God. And I said, really, all? And I said, hold on. I, there's, there's some rivers that don't lead to the ocean. He's like, what? I go, there's, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's some that, yeah, there's, that you know of. And go, for instance, one of the most famous ones. Oh, man, I had this in the hopper ready. He had no idea it was coming. I, I nailed, I killed him with this. And I said, for instance, the Jordan River. It doesn't go to the river. It doesn't, it doesn't end in the ocean. You know where it leads to? And he started laughing. I go, the Dead Sea. <laughs> Some rivers lead to death, literally. They lead to death. And, and some religions might lead to death too, right? Okay, that's a freebie, by the way. If someone ever says this, you go, hey, 
Not all rivers lead to the ocean. Some lead to death. <laughs> all right, the universalist view of a post-mortem universalism. Now, this is a distinctly Christian view of universalism. This, was, this is one that, that so, um, so Christian theologians will hold to this and even quote scripture and use the Bible and talk about Jesus and still hold to this view. So let's talk about it because this one is, is one that uh, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago became really popular, like extremely popular. Um, after death, God will deal sa- uh, savingly with all who for whatever reason left this world without faith in Christ. That somehow after death, God will deal in a way in which he saves everyone who doesn't have faith. First of all, if that's true, that's good news. Of all the, of all the, like, of all the, per, the perspectives that I want to be true, this is one that I want to be true. I'm not at all convinced it is. But wishful thinking, wishful hoping, I, I would, man, this is what I would pick. It, it, it doesn't hold to the justice of God at all, but man, is it good news. At least it, like, it's preferable. He, God, will confront them with their sin and give them countless opportunities to choose to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. This view says this, that you can still choose Jesus and have faith after death. You are still given endless opportunities to accept Christ. So, so death, on, at least in this life, is just a temporary setback. That you will still be uh, given opportunity to turn to Jesus. After placing their faith in Jesus, they will be allowed to join the rest of believers already in the presence of God and his angels. The rest of the believers who are already there, great, you have an opportunity to get in. In fact, you have countless opportunities to still get in. How God does this is explained differently by proponents of this view, but the main point is that God will indeed do it somehow. Somehow, God will save people who aren't Christians because he will allow them countless and continual opportunities. They, uh, they work within a fully Christian idea of final salvation through Christ and Christ alone. It's only through the cross. It's only through the, the death, burial, and resurrection, the sacrifice of Jesus if someone gets saved. What they will say, though, is that you are given that opportunity to accept that even after death. Just like faith in Jesus is the only way to get saved here on this side of eternity, it's the only way to get saved on the other side of eternity as well. And you'll be given that opportunity. Okay? All right? Um, here, this will give it away. This is a dead giveaway. Ready? In the end, love wins. And God will get what he wants, which is all men to be saved. First Timothy says that God, doesn't, uh, uh, God, is not, uh, God is not slow, as men count slowness, but he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to saving knowledge of him, to, for all to repent. God wants everyone to be saved. Um, there was a book written a number of years ago called Love Wins. You remember this? By a guy named Rob Bell. And it became extremely popular. It became the book. All of a sudden, it became, like, the topic of hell became the number one topic that people were talking about, discussing, reading about, um, being convinced of. And it was like a whole thing. And, and uh, so anyway, we'll talk about it here in a second. Let me, let me wrap up with this. Key problems with the universalist view. It substitutes logical speculation for biblical revelation. Man-made reasoning from a biblical principle for biblical exegesis of biblical text. Here's what it does. It says, well, here's seen, this seems to be a better way given the character and the nature of who God is. I think my way is better than his way. My understanding is better than 
than what he, what, what he seems to be saying in the Bible. Universalism diminishes the need to believe the gospel. This is the, the real danger of it. Why do you even need to believe in Jesus this life? If this, if this is true, and you will have countless opportunities after death, then live however you want right now. What does it matter? What does it matter? Right? In fact, it does this. It undermines evangelism and the call to repentance. And it undermines the finished work of Christ on the cross. There's no urgency to share the gospel if you'll, you'll be given endless, countless opportunities. There's no urgency if Jesus was wrong that there isn't, like he says in the Lazarus and rich man story, that there's a chasm between the two that you can't cross over in which Jesus says, he can't, Lazarus can't come to you nor can you come to us. There's a chasm that separates. Jesus has to be wrong then. He would have to be wrong in this great chasm that there, there isn't one and you can just decide to switch anytime you want. All right. On the back, you see there, for further study. So the first there, Love Wins, is the book that Rob Bell wrote. Um, it, is a, it is a fascinating book that is 98% wrong. I only say wrong, because it's hard. Have you, anyone read Love Wins? Nobody's read Love Wins? Oh, my gosh. All right. We've got some work to do here. Um, the first two chapters, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you don't even know what I'm talking about now. Do you guys, all right, who's heard of Rob Bell? Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. You know what? Let's just move on. It's going to be hard, too hard to explain. Rob Bell was a, a megachurch pastor who then wrote this book and then lost his job, left evangelicalism, is still what's considered a Christian. He's certainly a much more progressive, liberal theology Christian. And he holds to this view, though he never outright says it. So he pokes holes at the traditional kind of understanding of hell and he leads you to believe that this is where he lands and he writes, love wins. In the end, God, the love wins. God allows love to win and love means that he saves everyone. And he writes about it and the first two chapters are great because he, he just asks questions that are hard to deal with and hard questions. You're like, man, it's good. And then it just goes like just downhill. It just trails off and you're going, what, what? That doesn't, what are you talking about? What? And so he writes a book. The second one on here is a book called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. It's a response to Love Wins. So this popular book comes out, Love Wins, and it's literally the number one seller. I can't believe none of you have read it, or at least anyone heard of it? Six of you. All right. I'm, I'm not, by the way, I'm not a Rob Bell apologist here. I'm not like trying to defend him or like get you to buy his books. Don't buy, you know what? Throw your paper away. Don't, don't get any of this stuff. Uh, they write a book. If you're interested in it, they write a response to it, and it is phenomenal. So Erasing Hell is great, and it's not, it's not a book about Erasing Hell. It's a book that says, um, that is, uh, is critiquing those who want to erase hell, but then they say, no, 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 this is a doctrine that is clearly spelled out in the scriptures. There's another book called Four Views on Hell, which gets even more into these four views, and then there's another one that's much more scholarly that, that I've read that is probably, unless you're like a super glutton for for like theological punishment, uh, this book called Hell Under Fire, and it is a deep, deep dive into the theology and the doctrine of hell. Okay, here, now, let's discuss at our tables. Number one, what view of hell do you think is the most popular in our culture today? 
What view of hell do you find to be the most biblical? And those, I'm guessing, will be different. Number one and number two, I, I probably will be different. Number three, do you think hell is something we should bring up when sharing our faith? Why or why not? A little more personal now. And number four, how should the reality of hell create an urgency for us to share the gospel? All right, so here's how it works. At your tables, we're gonna discuss and, um, and uh, chat. Um, you're probably not gonna get through all of these. And you don't feel like you have to. We're probably gonna chat for, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. Um, so uh, once I say go, you're gonna uh, chat at your tables. Introduce yourselves in case you don't all know each other. Hey, I'm so-and-so. And, and uh, you know, here's... Here's why I think the 49ers will win. All right, something like that. And uh, so introduce yourself, and then you guys can say like, all right, well, you know, question number one, I think, and just go through it, right? Uh, You can't have only one person at your table share. So the temptation is to monologue and just say like, well, let me just tell you what I think. All right, I I give you a minute and a half. If If you have a really gracious table, you get two minutes. Two minutes to talk, and then it's someone else's turn. At two minutes and one second, you're done. You're done. In fact, you're kicked out of the table. You're kicked out of the church. So uh, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. Uh, but listen, the key, the goal is that you allow other people to share. So we all kind of interject. Uh, one last thing too. If you have questions or things that come up, you're like, you know what? I didn't understand that he said this, and I didn't understand that. Bring that up as well. And they may say like, oh, I had that question too. And that can be a question that maybe you, when we do our little Q&A, that would be good to ask. Okay. Ready, set, discuss. Go.
All right. Is the same person talking that started? Good. You can all stay in the church. Congratulations. You did good. You did good. You had some good discussion? Good, good. Okay. So um, <clears throat> now uh, we got some, uh, we move. So we always end with some Q&A. And this is the time in which this is the, probably the most different than a Sunday, right? A Sunday you show up and you hear a sermon and then you go home and you're like, oh, I got questions. And, you know, you don't really have a chance to, in the moment, be able to ask. Okay, this is now your time where you say, all right, I got a question. And, and right now, so you can uh, just, you got to raise your hand. We've got two microphones going around. You got to speak into the microphone um, so everyone can hear you. And, and here's the key, okay? Don't, this, is how, this is not how you speak into a microphone with it down here. This is the number one like, issue. The, the sound guys won't say this, but... Did you do that on purpose? Was that like... <laughs> Talking about microphones and... All right. So just keep it close so we know what you're saying. All right, I see you have someone already here? Okay. That's... Okay. So, so what you're saying is this is Andy's fault. Okay. Say no more. Testing? Okay. Yeah. We have a question about levels of hell. So, for example, if you're a, an unbelieving but good person, yeah. do you suffer less wrath or less um, circumstances than those are somebody who's like a, you know, a really, really bad guy? You talked yeah. about it earlier about levels of wrath. or maybe A little bit. Yeah. Degrees. Okay. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? Would you guys... Is this your table of like... 40 people right here? Okay. What did, where did you land? Oh, yeah, we, we said, we said, we're going to ask Brandon. <laughs> yeah, good. She said, we're hoping it's that way. Okay. So, uh, uh, as with all things, <laughs> this, is a, this is a good joke, but it's a bad joke. Hope is a terrible strategy. <laughs> now, what you want to know is, all right, is there biblical evidence for it? Right? Okay. So usually what we're told is, and this, so this is where I may go, I don't, I don't think, I think I'm, well, like all things, what I believe I hold because I think they're right. So I think I'm right. Um, most people will say um, that punishment is all the same and that hell is hell. And you go there and that's it. But I think the Bible is much more nuanced than that for a number of reasons. I'll give just a few. Uh, so let's speak, I'll speak logically, then I'll speak biblically. Okay, so logically. Will our experience of heaven all be the same? Okay, why not? You said that pretty quick. Because the Bible says so. Yes, that's good. I like that. That's the right answer. The right answer, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. Um, so, so we will be in the same place, but we're even told we will get different rewards, right? And whatever those rewards are, I have an opinion, an idea, and I, again, I could be wrong, but uh, whatever the reward is, it will be different for different believers. Okay, so our experience and our rewards will be different. Logically, it makes sense then that punishment or, or wrath or discipline will also be experienced differently, even in the same place. Okay, so logically, it makes sense. Even, even our sense of justice. Um, you go to court, um, and, uh, and right before you, there's a guy on trial for murder, and you're on trial, uh, you're, you show up to court because, you know, you got a speeding ticket. 
it would be an unjust judge who says you both get the same punishment. Hold on. This guy killed a guy. I just drove 10 miles an hour over and, and it's only because, you know, your speed sign was listed, not listed. And so I'm at fault. It would be a sense of injustice if, if, he, if this judge said, you committed a crime, doesn't matter the crime, the punishment's the same. Your punishment is equal to his, right? I mean, it would be, everyone would cry. Like, it would be a national story. Okay, if God is the perfect judge and judges righteously, and like we've been told, he judges according to a, what a person has done. What that means is that punishment is personal and seems to be given out according to the person. Jesus, there's a number of places where we look at this and say, okay, there seems to be different, I don't want to say levels, because I, this is not like Dante's Inferno. If you've read Dante's Inferno, right? it's not like you know nine levels of hell and he goes through all of them to save his girl, and you're like, okay, this is clearly a really bad love story. <laughs> and like, uh, we're not talking about Dante's Inferno where you're, you know, you're going to different, uh, he describes all these things, and it's like, all right, I don't know. Um, but hell does seem to be described differently, which gives us the, at least the, the understanding that there are probably different parts of hell. Okay, so for instance, it's described as fire, as having fire. Again, if that's literal, I think it is, that there's literal fire. And then there's places that are described as blackest darkness or outer darkness. So you have fire that produces light and you have darkness. Okay, they, they, can't, they can't be both the same place, so maybe they're different parts, different experiences. And depending on what you do, you've got a different spot. Jesus says a few things that make us think, okay, it, uh, that punishment won't, it won't be all carried out equally, or at least the same. It'll be fair, but based on the person. Jesus says, uh, says things like, it'll be, uh, it'll be better or more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town in that day, the day of judgment. One particular pound, uh, town, um, Chorazin, because he showed up and they rejected him as Messiah, and he says, it'll be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah. Their punishment will be worse. Somehow, whatever that looks like, to a different degree. Um, uh, Jesus says this when referring to little children, that those who, he says that, that uh, those who, um, who cause these little ones to fall, it would be better if they tied a millstone around their neck and drowned in the sea. This is Jesus, the great prophet teacher, saying, hey, listen, if you cause a little kid, if you cause harm on a little child, you should, you should be drowned. Okay, all right, Jesus. That seems to be pretty harsh. Um, he gives up, he, he shares a parable about, um, about, um, uh, servants who didn't do the will of the master and were in and and uh, and did what was um, uh, did what justified punishment for them, and he says this. He says, "Let me. You want me to read it to you? So you, just so you know, I'm not making it up. Okay, here's what it says. Um, all right, Luke chapter 12. Hold on, verse 47." And the servant who knew, this, who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand much. Here's what Jesus says. There are, there are those who... Um, 
who do what, what, what deserve to be punished. And if they knew it and didn't do it, they get a more severe beating than the light beating. All right. Now, again, this is harsh. And you're like, what? Jesus seems to be talking about different levels of punishment or judgment based on the actions of the person, right? So it makes sense logically. We can go through. There's, there's some, seems to be more passages. Uh, Paul talks about this again, according to what you've done. Um, he says this, we looked at this earlier, that there are those storing up wrath. Some have probably stored up more wrath than others. Um, and, and again, it, it, so it makes sense logically. It makes sense biblically. And it makes sense um, just, just at, a, at a heart level, right? For instance, um, someone who lived a good life, as we define good life, wasn't a follower of Jesus and therefore is dead in their sins, to receive the same punishment um, or, um, or discipline or, uh, or eternal conscious torment or, puni- or punishment as Hitler seems to be unfair or at least unjust, that the crimes are very different, yet the punishment would be the same. Uh, it would seem to make sense that God would judge both rewards differently and punishments differently. So how's that, right? Beyond just hopeful, wishful thinking, um, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that not, and I'm not talking like in the Catholic sense of like, you know, mortal sins or uh, like with regard to like, well, how do you define which one? No, no, no. Sin is sin. And all sins. Here's the deal. Everyone's experience of hell is going to be terrible. But for some, it seems to be, it will seem to be worse. Okay. Great first question. Let's see what else you guys got. All right. Yes. This isn't exactly... uh Related to like what will hell what will hell be like, but uh, it's similar. Is there anything in the Bible that addresses or talks about um, if someone dies before they are old enough to be able to understand the gospel and accept it or reject it? Will will they go to hell or or what does their future look like? Okay, you guys got the question right. Made sense. Okay. All right. So what what you're talking about in in uh, often is often referred to as the age of accountability. Uh, both in uh, theology and just in kind of the practical church life, in which, which you say, the, the argument goes like this. Um, uh, there, there seems to be a period in the, a person's life in which they are able to make um, uh, informed decisions, and in particular about faith and about Jesus, where they understand and then there are, is an age when you aren't. For instance, a one-week-old has no concept of anything. All they know is, I'm hungry, and, you know, oh, you took the diaper off? Now it's time to pee. <laughs> like, that's what they know. <laughs> like, at least that's what ours knew. Ours knew that instantly. <laughs> like, hey, let me change your... Oh! <laughs> like, so, so, like, um, when we talk about age of accountability, I, I, we're, we're not saying a, a number, when you get to 12 and a half, like at, at, 12, at 12 years and 213 days, no, no, we're not talking about a particular, particular like, like a age of every single person, but, but there, there, is a, there, has to, there is a point in which you go from infant, in which you don't know anything, to adult, in which you're making a decision. All right, at some point, there's a transition in which you go from, I'm not able to understand anything to now I can't understand and now I understand what's going on and I'm now held, I'm, I'm, 
uh, I'm now held culpable for what I do or don't do or what I believe or how I respond to the gospel. What, what that age is, I don't know. I don't know. The answer is, is talk about Jesus as early as possible to your kids. That's the answer. So that they, they, like, they, they grow up with the instruction of the Lord and being taught about Christ and, 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 and the God of the Bible and he loves them. Not, okay, but let me clarify too. Uh, how, you, how you share the gospel with a child is important and also different. For instance, you don't bring a four-year-old to a talk on hell and say, do you get it all? <laughs> do you understand what he said? Which view do you hold to? And they're like, I want to go home. So, so like, you don't overwhelm them, but you certainly teach them the instruction of the Lord. Okay, now, in the Bible, um, they're, the old, the, they're, King David, there's a story, and there's an experience in his life in which the, his two-year-old son dies. And, um, and he's mourning and weeping, and, and he's in fasting. And uh, while his son is sick but still alive, as soon as the son dies, he kind of like snaps out of it. And they're like, this is backwards. What are you doing? And he says, my son has died. And he says, he won't come back to me. But then he says this, this key phrase, but I will one day go to him. So his understanding was, all right, my infant son is now with the Lord. And one day I'll be with him. Okay. All right. That's David, man after God's own heart. He's, he's writing, a writer of scripture. He, all right. If I'm going to hold on to any kind of evidence, I mean, that seems to be good for me. So, um, so, so is, there, is there an age at which we're held accountable? Probably, yeah. I mean, there has, has to be. has to be. And it's got to be based on your capacity to understand your, your surroundings and the gospel. So some maybe even may adult, be adults and not able to. Maybe they'd be men- mentally challenged or just simply not capable of understanding. They may, be, they may have a body of a 20-year-old, but you know, the, the mind capacity of a two-year-old, and you're just like, all right. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not the one to judge. Who am I? But uh, um, yeah, does that make sense? Okay. All right. Two for two, you guys. Wow, okay, here we go. All right. Yeah. What's the Bible say about suicide? Bible says, this is literally what it says, don't be a fool, why die before your time? It calls, it calls suicide foolish and unwise. It does not. The Catholic view is it's a moral sin and it sends you straight to hell. That's not a biblical view. Of, of, uh, of committing suicide and sending you straight to hell. What we're told is that all sin is forgivable except one. And that sin that he lists is not suicide. The only sin not forgivable is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is essentially denying Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in him. And what you're saying, well, yeah, of course that's unforgivable. That's literally the, the thing that gets you saved, you deny. So, so is, is um, I'm guessing your question is, all right, if you commit suicide, like, what does that mean? Do you, is, that a, is that a one-way ticket straight to hell? Uh, I don't think you can make that argument biblically. The, church has, the Catholic Church has done that historically, traditionally, through, their, through the teachings of the church. Um, but scripturally, uh, you, can't, you can't make that argument because it, it is a sin, but it too can be forgiven. And if we believe that, 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 that Jesus' death on the cross forgives us 
past, present, and future, meaning that he has covered even your future sins, um, then it could, then theoretically and theologically, biblically, it covers the future sin of even suicide. I've known, I've known pastors who have lived a faithful life their entire life, loved the Lord, led their church, battled with anxiety and depression, and in the worst moment of their life, they took their life. And who, who am I? Who is any of us to say that one act in which they just wanted relief from their, their, the, the torture that they felt they were in would somehow negate the rest of their life of loving the Lord? That God will forgive them even of that, what the Bible calls foolish act. Okay, so three questions. Do, do we have a fourth? Is this gentle? Are you mean gentle? Does that help, by the way? Is that, is that good? Okay. All right. Give me an easy one, man. Oh, well. <laughs> I, I just want to say thank you for uh, teaching on such an important topic. Thank you very much, Brandon. That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> well, and and uh, so, so my question is this. By um, the way, you can ask a question every first Wednesday. <laughs> okay, keep, I'll take keep it up. Keep that. it up. Yeah. Uh, so is there room for a combination of these four views? Uh, so, like, for instance, the, the one about the age of accountability, I would probably be a little bit more in the universalist category on that, whereas overall I'm more in the literal view of hell. So, mm-hmm. anyway, I just wonder, is there room for a combination of views in this? Yeah. Um, yes. Next question. No. Uh, <laughs> So with, with regard to children or, or, or uh, especially infants um, or even, I believe, miscarriages. A miscarriage is a human. Uh, they're just preborn. They just haven't been born yet, but they are, they are fully uh, human. And, and uh, I, I think, I hope you would agree that they're a human and, uh, which would, and to be human means you have a soul that would live on. And so I, I think... The category of infants also uh, lands with, uh, with those who are, uh, who are maybe miscarried or stillborn, et cetera, or even aborted. Um, that, all right, so what happens? And I, I, again, we're not told, like, this is what happens to, uh, in, you know, uh, in an abortion or, uh, or a miscarriage. But, uh, but, but I, again, so I, I re- I'll tell you what I rest on, and then I'll tell you what I, th- what I think. I rest on this, that God is perfect and will judge rightly every time. So I don't have to make the call. You don't have to make the call. And it's not even our responsibility to make the call. And I'm glad I don't have to. And I rest in the fact that God will make the call and make the right call every single time. And we will all say, yeah, that's just, that, that's the right call. All right. So I rest in that. So it's not my responsibility or yours. I, I like you, um, hold to and believe that when a, when a child passes at, at such an early age that uh, before they even have the option to believe in Jesus, that it does seem to be, God, we know this, Jesus has a special place for children in his heart. He talks about angels assigned to them um, to protect them. Um, and I tend to think also that they go probably straight to the Lord and, and probably get to live, this is, this, and if I'm right, this is really cool. Um, they probably get to live the life they never lived on earth. They get to experience all that in heaven and maybe grow up in heaven. All right, that seems to be a good consolation 
to, to, the, you know, to the tragedy that they experienced or didn't even know they experienced is, all right, their soul, I, I, again, I rest on the Lord and I'm, you know, who am I to say this is what happens? But like you, I tend to think, all right, this seems to be the right, fair thing. Uh, so is it a mixture? Maybe, maybe, you know. Uh, I know some who hold to the literal view but, will, but don't like saying everlasting, so then they just kind of jump on to the destroy language and say, well, yes, but in the end, God will, when they're thrown into the lake of fire, that's when they're destroyed. They consider that, so at Revelation 20 and 21, they'll say, when, right now they're being punished, they're being, uh, but then the lake of fire is when they're done. And, and again, I, I hope that, I would love for that to be the case. I, I'm not convinced it is, though I, though I understand the argument, and there is a little bit of merit to it. Okay. It's 740. You guys. We will never go over again. That's one thing I, I can promise to you, is we, we won't go over again. Okay. So let me do this. Let me wrap up, because the kids are probably tearing up the carpet right now. Waiting. You can't wait to get home to mom and dad. Um, so let me pray for us. And then uh, we'll be dismissed. And it's snowing out. Is that true? Hey, you're welcome, guys. You're welcome, right? Um, let me pray for us. If you have questions, I'll be here. We can, we can chat. I'll be right up here. So just come see me. And um, um, all right, let me pray. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you made us to know you, to have a relationship with you, and that we can know you because of the cross, because of Jesus, what you did. We're, we, none of us have earned our ticket to heaven. None of us have, 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 are good enough to possibly make it in. What we rest on is the sacrifice and the forgiveness that we get from Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you. We trust you as Lord, as Savior, and we look forward to being with you one day, though we also recognize and realize many, many, wide is the road and the, and, and the, and the gate that leads to destruction, and many will experience that. Lord, help us to, like Paul, save as many as we possibly can with, with the limited number of days you've given us. May we, with every breath, be preaching Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out. This is, uh, I hope it was fun. hope you enjoyed it. We, here's the deal. Thank you. We will do this again next month with another New